Good morning, everyone. My name is Peter. I am one of the pastors here, and I want to invite you to uh, re-enter the series that we have been in for the last while. I want to be the, I'm going to be the scripture reader for us this morning. If you have your Bibles and want to read from that, you can open to Hebrews chapter 9. You can follow along with me on the screens or in your Bibles. I'm going to be reading from the New American Standard Version. And I'll be reading from chapter 9, verse 23, on to chapter 10, verse 2. A few verses there to hopefully represent well the rest of the verses we won't be reading publicly. Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often, as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world, but now once At the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. So Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin, to those who eagerly await him. For the law since it, was, it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually, year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have, been con- would have had consciousness of sins. The word of the Lord. We are sort of in the final stretch here in the book of Hebrews, the last third of the series. Uh, As a way of reminder, uh, our series has been called Witness, subtitled In Christ, In Culture. And the main thrust of the series has been an invitation for us, the people, to ask the question, who really is Jesus? What do I know of him personally? What can I bear witness to? Because we inherit a lot of Christianity, we inherit a lot of culture and a lot of religion, and we mistake in that to be our own confession. And we sometimes even put aside our own experience of Jesus and just regurgitate what we have been told and what we have received. It's not that the things we have inherited don't have a place in our own formation as the people of God, but it is more to the point who Jesus is to you in your own experience so that you can bear witness to something you have actually borne witness to. There's an authenticity in that witness. And that witness, when you bring that witness into culture, is effective and it's helpful. And today, um, I want to start with 
a feeling for me about Christianity and about Jesus, and it is that my feeling at this stage in my life, when more than ever before I believe in Jesus Christ, I see the relevance of Jesus, I see how he really is the uh, embodiment of the values that I see as most needed by this world and uh, by me, and yet I find that Christianity and religion uh, has made Jesus smaller than ever before. That somehow we've made, we've boxed Jesus and God in so tightly and so, in such a small way that the culture at large is experiencing him as more and more irrelevant. That people are opting out of religion and opting out of the church and out of Christianity. Some would say that they're not opting out of Christ, uh, but I think there is uh, attrition there as well. And that's my feeling. As I talk to people, I feel the scorn of even the category Christian. Uh, I know some of you relate to this, that you sort of hesitate to share with people that you go to church or believe in Jesus or that you are a Christian, not because you are less of a Christian, not because you believe in Christ less, but because you begin to experience for yourself that the church has become small, smaller than the God you actually know and believe in. That your witness of the Christ is larger than your practice of Christianity. And the way the church expresses its own faith in Jesus is so narrow and so small that you sometimes feel it deserves the reputation that precedes it. That the church is judgmental. That the church uh, is narrow-minded, is anti-intellectual. That it's dismissive. That... Uh, it's more an expression of hate rather than of love. Some of you have experienced this. I certainly feel this. I want to read to you a uh, little paragraph that I wrote to the leadership team of our church as a way to begin to share uh, how I feel about this. This was in my last report to them uh, for January. It says this, The words that most resonate with me for our next season of development as a church are focus and expand. For me, focus means to clarify our mission as a church and do more of what we are called to do and less of what we have just been doing. Expand captures for me the core issue with regard to church attrition, the opt-out culture that churches are experiencing all across America. I feel that Christians have made God, Christ, and church very small and therefore less relevant. We've reduced God to something man-made, national, political, behavioral, theological, and rote. The people in our culture today are not less spiritual, but they are experiencing the church as less spiritual and therefore less valuable as they, really we, optimize their schedules and priorities, they are opting out because they are making value-based choices. There are other reasons why folks opt out, a consumerist rather than commitment-oriented culture, less prone to go to a place, think online shopping and the death of malls, uh, for example, remote access to information, etc. However, the core issue is not with, quote-unquote, them, but with us, the church. We have made God small 
and therefore less relevant and valuable. When Jesus came on the scene, many who were heretofore uninterested in religion came out of the woodwork to make contact with a God beyond the current construct that God was boxed into. I think there is a great hunger for a God of justice, grace, and humility. And I want to know how to expand our concept and construct of God beyond what we have experienced thus far. Our current church values are pretty awesome, in my opinion. Open source, open culture, on mission, and Jesus. Unbeknownst to us, I think we may have articulated our future pathway. When I hear of an expansive God that is so much greater than our current construct of spirituality, comprised of political, moral, behavioral, and liturgical practices, I feel stirred, free, and hopeful. When I imagine seasons and years of just, quote-unquote, more of the same, honestly, I too want to opt out and go live a more authentic life. I'd rather shed the label Christian so that I can follow Christ without dragging dead weight around. What good is numerical growth or even a healthy organization if there isn't spiritual expansion underneath? Isn't spirituality our core product? That's a bit of my feeling when I think about the church in America today and also our church. How do you feel? I want to ask you to bear witness to your own feelings. How do you feel about Christianity. Do you proudly wear that label? How do you feel about the reputation that precedes Christians and the Christian church? Why does the word Christian or church tend to silence the room? Why do you feel the anxiety in people rising up when they realize they're adjacent to a Christian? Why do they avoid eye contact? Why do they move away from you rather than towards you? Why is it, it is true that people can only hear you when they're moving towards you, but you feel them moving away. They share less. We have some rare moments when they share more and they want you to pray for them and maybe they even have a need they'll present before you, maybe uh, some dire circumstance. But in general, I think it's time to stop being in denial about some of the truthfulness in the reputation and the baggage that the church and Christians have. When Jesus first came on the scene, it is true that those people who were fearful of religion, who had been burned by religion, who didn't feel included in religion, came out of the woodwork, and they were drawn to Jesus in an unprecedented way. Jesus began to command a broad spectrum of followers. The categories that had separated people, divided classes and groups, began to dissolve because they all find commonality in their attraction to Christ. In fact, so much was the uh, difference in the way he presented God that there is something theologians call the messianic secret. You know what that is? Jesus kept telling people to shut up about who he was. He didn't want people to say, this is the Messiah. That's the word Christ. 
The proper way to say is not Jesus Christ, it's Jesus the Christ, it's Jesus the Messiah. And it's called a messianic secret. He would tell demons, no, 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 don't tell anybody, shh, be quiet. He would tell people, don't tell anybody how you got healed. Don't tell them it was the Christ. Because their understanding of who the Christ was was so different from who the Christ actually was. He had to keep his title, his category, a secret. And I got to tell you, that's exactly how I feel about the word Christian. I don't want people to know that I'm a Christian. So that I can actually have a relationship with them before they make assumptions about me. Before they layer onto me their preconceived notions about what I am as a professional Christian. Can you imagine how much people shrink away when they find out I do this for a living? I was at the Apple store uh, getting uh, work on my phone done. And uh, um, uh, one of the guys uh, asked me what I do for a living. The guy that was helping me. I always say I'm a pastor, and I'm telling you every single time. I think maybe it's a little more highlighted at the Apple store for some reason. Conversation shuts down. This time, I made something up. I said, I'm starting a company. Really? So interesting. Tell me everything about who you are. True story, ask Susie. I came back, just, there you go again. People do not feel drawn to the church in general. And I'm telling you, we can say it's them, it's them, it's them, but it's time to ask the question, is it also us? So how do you feel about Christianity How do you feel about the church today? How do you feel about our culture and how they feel about Christians and the church? The climax of the author of Hebrews' um, point, actually his whole point in the book of Hebrews, is that Jesus is the Christ. That he's the one and only son of God. But... He's making the point here in these last three chapters that there has never been any construct of him that has been accurately able, sufficient to represent the Christ. And it's so interesting. The book is called Hebrews, but he's spending the bulk of his time in the book of Hebrews criticizing and tearing down the construct that was put in place by God himself to point to the Christ. And what the author is teaching is, it is time, folks. Jesus himself is on the scene. And I want you to understand the difference between the construct and the Christ. These two are not one and the same. One is absolutely efficacious in being able to represent who God is perfectly in the very nature God. If you have seen Jesus, you have seen God. On the other hand, this sacrificial system with priests and rituals and laws and behavior and good works, all of these things never were meant to be a substitute 
for God. Never. It was never meant to teach you who God is in totality. It was meant to fail in some regard so that it points to the actual God. That nothing can actually hold God properly. That's the, one of the biggest points of Hebrews. And you get a sense of that in these many verses uh, that we didn't read and some that we read today. And that's what I want to talk about. Just one point today. Construct versus the Christ. That's our one point. That the construct is not the Christ. Though we get attached and we often mistaken the construct for the Christ. We'll start with verse 9, uh, chapter 9, verse 14. This one little phrase called dead works. Now, I hope that after my little um, commentary on this, that you're going to love this phrase as much as I do. I think it's one of the uh, most uh, pithy but illustrative two words in the whole Bible, especially in context. Dead works. Is it referring to bad works? No, because bad works is already dead. But when you put the adjective dead in front of the noun works, what are you talking about? The author is talking about good works. Obedience to the law. Adherence to the traditions and customs and practices, regulations of the sacrificial system by which you enter into some semblance of the presence of God and experience some foreshadowing of the forgiveness of your sin. Because there's never forgiveness of sins prior to Christ, apart from Christ. There's no such thing. The author says that twice in these verses. There was never forgiveness, ever. Aside from Christ. And so when you say dead works, you're talking about good works. Therefore, all works are dead. Why are all works dead? Works were never ever something God honored. It never works in your relationship with God. In fact, it's antithetical to the concept of a relationship with God in the first place. For example... Uh, a little story to help illustrate this. In my personal life, um, I see this everywhere. Uh, we, our family, made a huge deal of Star Wars. It's been fun. I was never super into it, but, you know, for my kids, I wanted to get into it. And so we set aside two whole weekends prior to the opening day of Star Wars 7, and uh, we uh, watched all six of them. And then lots of internet searching and conversation just to sort of like get ourselves into uh, this whole um, cultural phenomenon. Uh, and uh, just this week, one of my kids made me a super creative and very intricate and uh, fun version of Chewbacca with paper and uh, just gave it to me. Dad, this is for you. Chewbacca. So fun to be in that kind of energy and dynamic with the kids and just so much love. And I realized that act of my child giving, handing me Chewbacca, it's an act of affection. It's an act of connection. It's a way for the child to affirm the relationship naturally and instinctively. It's the relationship itself playing out. You know one thing that act of handing me Chewbacca is not? 
It's not debt repayment. It's not like, you know, my dad, he's amazing. And he really loves me. He's spent at least, you know, uh, $100,000 on me so far. So uh, I'm going to begin to pay this back. There was no concept, feeling, or mental about in, the, in that category at all. But if she were to give me something as a way to repay me, that would be what the Bible would call works. And here's why that's so antithetical to the idea of relationship. Because works intrinsically, by their very nature, are, an, are acts of control a way to establish independence. It's narrowing the nature of the relationship to one that's contractual rather than covenantal. It's a misunderstanding of the concept of love in the first place. It's a way to try to get out of perceived debt and rather to attempt to place the other person in their debt. It rejects the premise of love and grace and seeks to recreate it into a transactional relationship where I'm not that anymore. I'm just some dude who's giving stuff to her, and that makes her feel uncomfortable, like I have power and control. So then she wants to squirm her way out of that dynamic, so she's going to try to repay me so that she can become a free agent, and then she wouldn't feel she owed me anything. Rather, maybe if she could outgive me, I would owe her something. And this is what we do. I received a few gifts this Christmas season from uh, many people. Every single gift, I squirmed. I did. I just suck at receiving. I really do. It just makes me feel so uncomfortable. And really, it's my ego that's uncomfortable. It's my pride that's uncomfortable. To receive is utterly humiliating. And if you, all you do is say, thank you, and you realize it's affection and it's love and it's connection, it's beautiful, but my ego doesn't like that because I'm more comfortable putting God in debt. If I can somehow establish a transactional, contractual relationship with God, then he owes me the good life. Because I do all these things to be moral, to be upright, to be a light in this world, to be a giver rather than a matcher or a taker. That feels good. That feels like I'm in control. I don't have to actually be in a relationship based on grace and love. Therefore, all works are dead especially the good ones. You have to repent of your badness, yes. As Keller says, you also have to repent of your goodness. Your goodness might be the bigger enemy to God. That's why you got to love this phrase, dead works. Because all works are dead, the good ones especially All works, including religious practices, morality, obedience to rules, being good, if they are not in their essence born from affection, connection, and affirmation of the relationship, by their very nature, they are hostile, rebellious, and an affront to God. And it's aiming to get out from under divine debt and conversely place the divine in debt so that he might owe us the good life. 
works, good and bad, are mere constructs whose place in life is to teach us about Jesus, the only one who can handle being good. Remember what Jesus said to the rich young ruler? The rich young ruler came to Jesus and said, I've done all these amazing things. I've obeyed every single law there ever was. Is there anything else I have to do? And he was hoping to receive a pat on the back. And Jesus said, why do you call me good? And his question was, why are you thinking in terms of good and bad? Why is that a category in your mind for yourself? Do you not know God alone is good? God alone gets to think about good and evil. You are just evil. You don't get to think about good. There is no good enough. There's no trying to be good. In fact, when you try to be good, it's an affront to God because all works are dead. That's what Jesus was saying. If we reduce Christianity to good works, we have worked God out of our life. And this is how the world perceives the church today. That we think we're good. That we're goody two-shoes. We're holier than thou. This is what they really think. They feel self-conscious because they think, we think we're good, so we think they're worse, and we're going to judge them. Because our human nature's response to goodness is self-righteousness. Therefore, other condemnation. This is the way we work. Another couple of verses that are interesting. Chapter 9, verse 24, uh, phrase, a mere copy. And chapter 10, verse 1, only a shadow. And this is now referring to the sacrificial system with animals, blood, regulations, and priests. And here's how God feels about those things, the whole system. Chapter 10, verse 8, sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them. Even as God himself instituted the sacrificial system with offerings, whole burnt offerings, and sacrifices for sin, even as he created this construct in his heart, he was saying, this is not it. It never was it. It's never going to be it. It's just an arrow. It's just a sign pointing to. Imagine you're driving and you're looking for a destination. Then you see a sign for the destination. You just stop there and you say, wow, let's just live here. It's like, no, idiot. It's a sign. Keep going. Follow the sign. Let the sign point you to something. Why in the world would you think to stop at the sign? Why would you picnic here? Why would you set up tabernacles and tents? Your area of dwelling here. Live here. Are you kidding me? You are on your way to something. Keep going. Why does he feel this way? Chapter 10, verse 11. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same practices which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. If you choose the pathway of works, you're going to have to choose it for the rest of your life. It's perpetual. The priests 
had to offer sacrifices again and again and again and again and again forever until Jesus came. And he, once and for all, said to you, you have arrived. Welcome. Welcome. We drove 40 hours to California there and back this past Christmas break. I cannot tell you how amazing it is when the sign says, welcome to the state of Washington. It's amazing. You begin to feel hatred for California and then Oregon. You cannot wait to be in the state of Washington. And there's something like that. He wants you to feel a certain sense of good riddance. It was just a placeholder. It was just something I had to get through. But here it is, your destination. A lifetime of works equals anxiety, self-righteousness, insecurity, judgment, sort of a never-enoughness, and the kind of hopelessness that Pastor Bud talked about last week. It's like student debt or credit card debt or a leaky roof or an old car or an abusive spouse or a failing health or a toxic relationship. It's like, oh, I'm glad I learned from that, but good riddance. It's done. It's over. Your home, this is what you are meant for. Heaven is a place where you're going to go. And it's going to be completely new and different, but you're going to at the same time feel totally at home. It's like, oh my gosh, this is me. What's, what's God going to do about this problem? Verse, chapter 10, verse 9, he takes away the first in order to establish The second, the current and established constructs always fail to keep up with God's ever-expanding self-revelation. It's what theologians call progressive revelation. God doesn't just say, here I am in totality. Through your lifetime, through the lifetime of human history, God is revealing himself. And for all of eternity, we will be coming to know God. We will never know God in totality. It's not possible for us, but that journey upwards of knowing God is the greatest pleasure that creation has to offer. And so God is always expanding our minds and our hearts. And the rate of growth for us is always faster than the rate of change for the constructs. The constructs will always lack behind because that's the nature of construction. It's always delayed. Don't you know this? It's always going to be double the estimate financially and time-wise. The same thing with our constructs of God, of spirituality, of the universe, of how everything works, of who you are. God's revealing things to you at a rate that's faster than the constructs you just got attached to. You're just beginning to understand, and here's God going, okay, next. There's more because I'm infinite. I'm eternal. And God invites us to trust him, to be centered in him and him alone and open ourselves up to new thought, to new constructs. I was very much helped by this idea of the center set versus the bounded set. And this is part of what drew me into this denomination we call the covenant church in the first place. The center set and bounded set explain a lot how different folks work and different denominations work. The covenant church is what we would call the center set model. 
Lots of other churches are what's called the bounded set model. Bounded set means this is what I am and this is what I am not. Here are a thousand things that's true about me and a thousand things that are not true about me and this is me. I'm done thinking. I'm done feeling. This is the eternal construct. That's what a lot of churches are. That's what a lot of people are. But the covenant church, for example, is what we call the center set. And what that means is that they have a few things that they believe are essential and central. And then they say, as long as you stay connected to the center pole, what we call the affirmations, there's six of them, then you can go out as far as you need to to be culturally and missionally effective. Adapt as much as you need to as long as you understand that you do not negotiate on certain centralities of who we are and who we are not. And so I want to present to you this concept for yourself. Ask yourself, what do you believe in? What matters most? What are you absolutely non-negotiable on? And everything else is fair game. Because the times are changing, minds are expanding, hearts are growing, the culture is moving, evolving. And you say, you know, to be missionally effective, to be able to communicate to the culture in a way they understand, I'm going to adapt. And this has always happened. For example, let me ask, is God greater than systematic theology? Yeah, of course it is. Systematic theology itself has been changing. We are all enjoying the byproducts and the result of the Reformation, aren't we? 95 Thesis, nailed to the door. Do you remember this story? Yeah, that's true. That's true. We have women preachers in our church today. Is that true? Yeah. Was not always so. Was not always so. Uh, what about church practice? Is God greater than church practice the way we do church today? Of course he is. It's not like God shows up and says, you know, the way we used, I used to be worshipped in the 1700s is the way I have to be worshipped for all time. That'd be silly. That would be silly because we love drums. <laughs> what about church leaders? Is God greater than church leadership? I certainly hope so. What about social political hot button topics? Is God greater than social political hot button topics? Yes, He is. Is God greater than tradition? Yes, He is. Now, what anchors are we allowed to have? That's the question that Hebrews 9 and 10 answers. What anchors are we allowed to have? And the answer, Sunday school class, is Jesus. And Jesus alone. We believe in the Christ. As he actually is. Not as we imagine him to be. Not as we knew him to be. But as he actually is. And with everything else, we practice what theologians call hermeneutics. The art of interpretation. Is your foundation Jesus and Jesus alone? Is your allegiance Jesus and Jesus alone? This is why Jesus said, if you want to follow me, you have to hate your mother and father, brother and sister, and even your own life. Compared to your allegiance to me, you have to be willing to hate everything else. 
This is the way faith has always worked, and this is the way faith was always meant to work. And you have to feel uncomfortable and comfortable with that. Conclusion. Jesus is greater than the church. Jesus is greater than theology. Jesus is greater than worldview. Jesus is greater than culture. Jesus is greater than political views. Christian nationalism. Jesus is greater than church history. Jesus is greater than NPR or Fox News. Jesus is greater than the law, greater than morality, greater than behavior modification, greater than social acceptability, greater than the sum total of all of our expectations, experiences, thoughts, imagination. Absolutely he is. Absolutely he is. All of it are just mere works, dead works at that. Make Jesus small. Stay attached to our constructs. Love created things more than the creator, and the world will find less value in God. Find the church rest less relevant. And as they optimize their lives and schedules, they will opt out of church. And that's what we're seeing today. Our church, for example, is healthier and growing inside and out more than it has in the recent years. And yet the new folks that are coming belong to an opt-in, opt-out culture. And they come to church less often. People who say this church is their home, they come maybe one to two times a month. And even some of you who come almost every week, you still come less than you used to. Because you're part of the culture. And we as a leadership and as a church are trying to understand, how do we adapt here? How can we thrive in this spirituality? the current state of things. And we understand that even the construct of coming to church every week, for many of you, it's negotiable. You're not less spiritual, but you're asking, how do I be more spiritual without necessarily being married to the construct of church as we have known it? I guess the broader question I'm asking is, are you willing to throw off what is not Jesus? If necessary. If called to. What are you willing to do to stay connected to the center pole, but to go out in places you have not gone out before to be effective ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ? I want to end the sermon with a story. It's a story that I've heard many times. Many famous preachers have quoted this story because it's a good one, uh, including our own superintendent, Greg, and even my hero, Tim Keller, uh, quoted this story. And I want to read it for us. And it's just a little glimpse into what the church can do if we're willing to break construct and stay connected to Christ. It's from a book by Tony Campolo called The Kingdom of God is a Party says this, up a side street, this is in Hawaii, up a side street, I found a little place that was still open. I went in, took a seat on one of the stools at the counter and waited to be served. This was one of those sleazy places that deserves the name Greasy Spoon. I did not even touch the menu. I was afraid that if I opened the thing, something gruesome would crawl out. But it was the only place I could find. The fat guy behind the counter came over and asked me, what you want? I said, I want a cup of coffee and a donut. He poured a cup of coffee, wiped his grimy hands on his smudged apron, then he grabbed a donut off the shelf behind him. I'm a realist. I know that in the back room of that restaurant, donuts are probably dropped on the floor and kicked around, but when everything is out 
front where I could see it, I really would have appreciated if he had used a pair of tongs and placed a donut on some wax paper. As I sat there munching on my donut and sipping my coffee at 3.30 in the morning, the door of the diner suddenly swung open, and to my discomfort, in marched eight or nine provocative and boisterous prostitutes. It was a small place, and they sat on either side of me. Their talk was loud and crude. I felt completely out of place and was just about to make my getaway when I overheard the woman beside me say, tomorrow's my birthday. I'm going to be 39. Her friend responded in a nasty tone, so what? Do you want, what do you want from me? A birthday party? What do you want? You want me to get you a cake and sing you happy birthday? Come on, said the woman sitting next to me. Why do you have to be so mean? I was just telling you, that's all. Why do you have to put me down? I was just telling you it was my birthday. I don't want anything from you. I mean, why should you give me a birthday party? I've never had a birthday party in my whole life. Why should I have one now? When I heard that, I made a decision. I sat and waited until the woman had left. They called over, then I called over the fat guy behind the counter, and I asked him, do they come in here every night? Yeah, he answered. The one right next to me, does she come here every night? Yeah, he said. That's Agnes. Yeah, she comes in here every night. Why'd you want to know? Because I heard her say that tomorrow is her birthday, I told him. What do, you, what do you say you and I do something about that? What do you think about us throwing a birthday party for her right here tomorrow night? A cute smile slowly crossed his chubby cheeks, and he answered with measured delight, that's great. I like it. That's a great idea. Calling to his wife, who did the cooking in the back room, he shouted, hey, come out here. This guy's got a great idea. Tomorrow is Agnes's birthday. This guy wants us to go, uh, go in with him and throw a birthday party for her right here tomorrow night. His wife came out of the back room all bright and smiley. She said, that's wonderful. You know, Agnes is one of those people who is really nice and kind, and nobody does anything nice and kind for her. Look, I told them, if it's okay with you, I'll get back here tomorrow morning about 2.30 and decorate the place. I'll even get a birthday cake. No way, said Harry. That was his name. The birthday cake's my thing. I'll make the cake. At 2.30 the next morning, I was back at the diner. I picked up some crepe paper decorations at the store and had made a sign out of big pieces of cardboard that read, Happy Birthday, Agnes. I decorate the diner from one end to the other. I had that diner looking good. The woman who did the cooking must have gotten the word out on the street because by 3.15, every prostitute in Honolulu was in the place. It was wall-to-wall prostitutes and me. <laughs> At 3.30 on the dot, the door of the diner swung open and in came Agnes and her friend. I had everybody ready. After all, I was kind of the MC of the affair. And when they came in, we all screamed, Happy birthday! Never have I seen a person so flabbergasted, so stunned, so shaken. Her mouth fell open. Her legs seemed to buckle a bit. Her friend grabbed her arm to steady her. As she was led to sit on one of the stools along the counter, we all sang happy birthday to her. As we came to the end of our singing with happy birthday, dear Agnes, happy birthday to you, her eyes moistened. Then when the birthday cake with all the candles on it was carried out, she lost it and just openly cried. Harry gruffly mumbled, blow out the candles, Agnes, come on, blow out the candles. If you don't blow out the candles, I'm going to have to blow out the candles. And after an endless few seconds, he did. Then he handed her a knife and told her, cut the cake, Agnes. Yo, Agnes, we all want some cake. Agnes looked down at the cake. Then without taking her eyes off it, she slowly and softly said, look, Harry, is it all right with you if I, I mean, is it okay if I kind of, what I want to ask you is, 
Is it okay if I keep the cake a little while? I mean, is it all right if we don't eat it right away? Harry shrugged and answered, sure, it's okay. If you want to keep the cake, keep the cake. Take it home if you want to. Can I? She asked. Then looking at me, she said, I live just down the street a couple of doors. I want to take the cake home, okay? I'll be right back, honest. She got off the stool, picked up the cake, and carrying it like it was the Holy Grail, walked slowly toward the door. As we all sat, we, as we all just stood there motionless, she left. When the door closed, there was a stunned silence in the place. Not knowing what else to do, I broke the silence by saying, what do you say we pray? <laughs> Looking back on it now, it seems more than strange for a sociologist to be leading a prayer meeting with a bunch of prostitutes in a diner in Honolulu at 3.30 in the morning. But then it, was just, it, but then it just felt like the right thing to do. I prayed for Agnes. I prayed for her salvation. I prayed that her life would be changed and that God would be good to her. When I finished, Harry leaned over the counter and with a trace of hostility in his voice, he said, hey, you never told me you're a preacher. What kind of church do you belong to? In one of those moments when just the right words came, I answered, I belong to a church that throws birthday parties for whores at 3.30 in the morning. Harry waited a moment and then almost sneered as he said, no, you don't. There's no church like that. If there was, I'd join it. I'd join a church like that. Wouldn't we all? Wouldn't we all like to join a church that throws parties for whores at 3.30 in the morning? The first month that I was here, uh, Bill uh, brought a prostitute to our church to service, and she came two weeks in a row. The first week she was here, she walked down the aisle. She sat with me and prayed to accept Christ. And then we followed up with her for a couple of months, and then she sort of trailed off. It was a wonderful reminder to me of what the church is able to do. Not because it's so special, but because it's so rare. And it's not something that's associated with the church nowadays. Though I think it's supposed to be. Who do you say that Jesus is? Is he your allegiance? Is he your center? Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed. Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes the judgment, so Christ also will appear a second time to those who eagerly await him for the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never make perfect those who draw near. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no human mind has conceived the things God has prepared for those who love him. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with the measure of all the fullness of God. Their church is your benediction and prayer. Amen.